Welcome to episode 39 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to examining the work of writer director J.J. Abrams. I'm your host. My name is Marcelo Nisrosa, joined as always by my fellow co-host Matt Crandall. And on this edition, we'll be talking about Lost, season two, episodes eight through ten. The first episode that we're going to talk about today out of the gate is the episode entitled collision so matt what did you think about that one i enjoyed collision a lot partly because i was surprised it was an anna lucia flashback episode in the aftermath of shannon's death we have a lot of questions about anna lucia and here we learn more about who she is and discover she was a cop in the lapd the flashbacks show her in therapy after a traumatic incident trying to discover if she's ready to return to duty we learn that her mother is the police captain and isn't ready for anna to be back on the streets but her daughter really pressed her and she gets teamed up with Michael Cudlitz, put back out on the street, and we find out that she might not have been ready for this yet. She still is dealing with the trauma. In those moments, we also learn that since what happened to her, she is willing to lie and manipulate a situation to get revenge and that really shines a new light on her her actions on the island take charge quick to anger shoot first ask questions later all stem from her pre-815 life as a cop these are like characteristics that are ingrained in her which was very revealing and added a new layer of depth to the character and i thought it was a pretty good use of michelle rodriguez because i buy her as a cop if you had told me she was a nuclear physicist i'd have called bullshit but a cop makes sense at the end of her flashback they drop in a small nugget that adds a new layer of sympathy and empathy for the character that we didn't have before because she's been so unlikable for most of her screen time that adding that tragic element to her backstory really painted her in a new light, made me like her a little bit more, or at least understand where she's coming from, especially with what's going on on the island right after she accidentally murders Shannon. Her and Saeed have a tussle, and she ties Saeed to a tree and is trying to figure out if she needs to kill this guy, what she has to do, and they at least extend a little bit of an olive branch by allowing her to give the okay for Echo to bring Sawyer, who's still bleeding out and on the verge of death, back to the main camp while Anna tries to figure out her next move. So I love that she allowed that to happen, and the moment where Echo comes out of the jungle and meets up with Jack was really well done. Really liked that part, and the realization that the passengers of the tail section have survived, and finally, these two camps are converging together in this episode made me very excited, and I really liked that aspect of it a lot. This episode pissed me off. I thought I was going to say something positive, but I'm actually not going to say anything positive at all. I really don't like Anna Lucille's temper. I don't really understand it. When Anna Lucille is trying to get her group to tie up Saeed to the tree, even Michael says, what are you doing? You're out of your mind. But when we do get Anna Seal's backstory through the flashbacks, I do kind of sympathize with her a little bit because it is there that we finally understand that she is suffering from post-traumatic stress. She went out on a call with a with her partner and during that call she got shot and she almost died. And ever since that day she's kind of been dealing with consequences of that day. I think that the shrink that, that she was seeing because the police department demanded her to see a shrink, I do think that that shrink needs to get fired 
because it is abundantly clear that she is still suffering post-traumatic stress. I mean, when she eventually goes back uh, uh, to the street as a police officer, uh, her and her partner, they respond to a call of a domestic disturbance of a boyfriend stealing a TV from his girlfriend. And to pacify the situation, Anna basically pulls a gun on the poor guy and her partner the actor from Southland who seems to play a cop and everything, I don't know his name, he was like, Jesus, Anna Lucille, put the gun down, put the gun down, what's wrong with you? And then later on in the episode, I really liked the scene where the police department arrests the guy that apparently shot Anna and the DA wants to bring charges against that gentleman, but the, the only thing that the DA needs is for Anna to identify him. And when she doesn't do that, I was like, what is she doing here? But later on in the episode... As the episode ends, I really like what she does when she meets up with this individual who shot her. What she says to him before she shoots him is heartbreaking. It is it is really gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. Yeah, it's one of those things that adds a layer of sympathy to the character that we didn't have before we found that out. But it also shows that she can manipulate a situation, lying in that moment when she needs to identify her attacker for her own benefit. She lies because she knows she is going to kill that guy. He took something precious away from her, so she wants to take his life away. That kind of premeditated plan to carry out her revenge is very calculated and hard to look past. When her and Michael Cudlitz, who does seem to always play a cop type, Southland Walking Dead, the guy's awesome, but he does always play these tough authority kind of guys. They're out on the call with the guy carrying the TV and Anna Lucia pulls the gun. He's surprised and a bit freaked out saying, whoa, 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 put the gun away. That's not what we do. That's not what we do. And we can see that Anna is probably suffering from some sort of post-traumatic stress. When she reveals at the end, I was pregnant. We understand the level of trauma in a much larger way. Suddenly her actions and revenge plan to commit full-out murder make a lot more sense. Losing a child in that heartbreaking way is a trauma that can maybe never be fixed. It's something she'll have to carry with her her entire life. Even if she's trying to move on, it will never go away. All of that traumatic backstory is intercut with her discussion with Saeed in the jungle where he asks if Anna Lucia is going to kill him and she says, should I? Maybe you should. Saeed tells her the story of how he has tortured people, that he can still hear the voices at night of all the people that he inflicted pain upon, driving hard at his own guilt for his past actions. And in those moments, cooler heads start to prevail and Anna Lucia realizes she is not going to kill Saeed. She unties him and then she turns the table and kind of gives Saeed the power, saying that because of what she has done, maybe she deserves to die. And Saeed replies, what good would it be to kill you if we're both already dead? That may have been revealing too much of the writer's intentions for the islands, the themes of life, death, redemption, having to atone for your sins, that kind of thing. And certainly that moment played into fan theories about purgatory, heaven, hell in a big way. I am so glad that you brought up those scenes with Saeed and Anna Lucille, because I really think that to an extent, Saeed and Anna Lucille are similar to one another in that they've both been traumatized by what they've done in the past. And the island is sort of their second chance before they get to go on to greener pastures, whether it be heaven or whatever. But with that being said, I don't think that the way that Anna Lucille's story ends is very satisfying. I, I would have wanted a little bit more from her character before she ultimately ended up the way that she did. 
Yeah, there was probably more there, but I think they heard the fans screaming that they couldn't stand her, so they decided to get rid of her. My favorite moment of Collision is right at the end when Bernard and Rose are reunited. The music is perfect and emotional. The performances are so good. The look on Rose's face when she sees Bernard and they embrace was so satisfying after all the time they've spent apart and Rose never losing faith that he was still alive was a very moving scene almost brought me to tears, started to get a little dusty in the room. With that being said, we move on to uh, the second episode we're going to talk about this week, entitled What Kate Did. What Kate Did is an alright episode, but I'll be honest, it was my least favorite from this batch of three. In the flashbacks, we finally find out what sent Kate down this path, her life on the run, how Wayne was a source of a lot of her trauma and pain. In the final moments of her flashback, where some vital information is brought to light, we do see why Kate is the way she is, never feeling that safe or secure, always on the move, never fully trusting others, getting another piece of the Kate puzzle was nice, but it didn't hit as hard as some of the other characters' backstories. I wasn't as invested. I much preferred the island storyline in this episode, which was more focused on putting Shannon to rest, Sawyer's recovery, and getting that forward momentum going again to start advancing things on the island. Now that the OG survivors and the tailies are together as one group, we can start to get on with the overarching stuff with the others, and I'm really excited about that. Did you like the Kate backstory, Marcelo? I kind of did and I kind of didn't. In the kind of did section, I did like that we finally know what she did to be basically hunted by that FBI douchebag. I kind of felt really upset for her because her mother is like the worst parent ever. Even if my child, God forbid, ever committed a crime, I would never call the cops on my child. I would sit down with them and hear their side of the story. And if worse comes to worse, I'll drive my child to the police station to be turned in. I'm never going to rat out my children or a member of my family. So that really upset me. As far as the Shannon stuff uh, that happened in this episode with her burial, I thought her funeral scene was very, very touching and the fact that Saeed almost couldn't get the words out was very telling about how short their relationship was but how effective their relationship was. Like I've said in past weeks I think that the character of Shannon was underwritten and I ultimately I think that she was a device for another character on the island by the name of Boone. And I think that once the writers decided to kill off Boone, I believe that she, that her character served no purpose. So they had to kill her off. So I, I felt kind of bad for the actress in that aspect, Maggie Grace, that she didn't really get a meaty enough role for us to care about her. It is unfortunate. I think it is partly because Shannon's character is so tied to Boone that it's hard to make her interesting without him. She's kind of a privileged white girl with only a small amount of likability. And they tried to remedy that with her backstory to add some empathy for her right before she died with the whole Boone's mom is very mean to her and won't help her out in her moment of need. But it was kind of too little too late. I think the writers hit a wall with her without Boone. Shannon seemed kind of superfluous, which is too bad because I do like Maggie Grace and would have liked if they had given her more to do. But with the amount of characters they were adding in the second season, I think Shannon just got lost in the shuffle. I found it very interesting that Kate was having sort of a mental breakdown as to what she did to get in jail. And she kept seeing this horse everywhere. In the flashbacks, 
and on the island in present day. And I loved how this episode thematically matched up to the episode from season one called The Right Rabbit, where Jack kept seeing his father everywhere. I did appreciate that touchstone to this episode, and it was really, really interesting seeing Kate deal with her past sins. Although I do think that whole scene where Sawyer almost chokes Kate to death is is a bunch of bullshit because I don't think the soul of Kate's dead father, biological dead father, basically found some way into Sawyer. I think that Kate was basically imagining that whole thing go down. I think it was Kate, maybe not hallucinating per se, but we were seeing the events as she perceived them. With that horse and her thinking that Wayne had somehow possessed Sawyer's body was kind of a really big leap for us to try to take. So I, I don't know. It's Kate's dehydration and stress on the island acting out. Very weird and out there for her to think that Sawyer had been possessed by Wayne. Kind of a bridge too far for Lost, I think. So it's a relief when Sawyer wakes up normal and she realizes that it was all sort of in her mind. That Kate fever dream stuff was my least favorite part of this entire episode. The other thing that was really weird to me is in Kate's stress, dehydrated condition, she basically loses it in the jungle to Jack. She just kisses him out of the blue. Now, I love the Kate and Jack uh, relationship on Lost. I mean, they're my favorite couple on the show, but I'm calling nothing but pure bullshit. That's ridiculous. Of all the things that she could have done, she could have punched him. She could have walked away from him. She could have struck. Why did she have to kiss him? That is some serious shipper bullshit. And I don't know why I got so upset at that particular moment, but something about that moment just irked the crap out of me. The other thing that I particularly loved about this episode is that when Kate goes to see her father that raised her and she confirms that the gentleman that she just killed, her biological father, Wayne, is indeed her father. I felt destroyed by uh, the conversation that she had with him. And that actor who played her father did a wonderful job after they embraced and Kate actually walked out of the recruiting office and she said, bye daddy. And the look on his face was just a look of disappointment, anger, sadness. And what he says to Kate, he goes, I wanted to take you, but your mother didn't let me. I'm like, oh God. I mean, for some reason that just hit me where I live and it really affected me. Yeah, that was my favorite flashback scene. She tells Sam that she was gathering photos for a thing for him and inadvertently got the information by looking at the dates on the back. They don't line up, so she knows he is not her biological father. And that moment was heartbreaking when he admits it and says the reason they hid the truth from Kate is that he knew she would kill Wayne and basically this would ruin her life and send her on a dark path. And she's frustrated because she's like, well, if you knew I would, then why didn't you? She kind of understands that it's for her own good, but also the look on their faces say so much. And I was glad that Sam agreed to give her an hour head start so that it still shows, you know, he cares, but he still has to do the right thing by calling the authorities. So that was really nice. And we got a great sense of their lived history. And it really fleshed out Kate's trauma in a big way. My favorite scenes of the episode overall are the ones on the island between Locke and Echo. Echo presents the book to Locke that has the cut footage from the Dharma training film inside of it that was at the other station, and he brought it with him. And Locke gets it and opens this book and starts saying, like, the amount of the chance that these two guys would meet in this jungle and Locke would have the film and Echo would have the cut footage is crazy. And Echo says... 
do not mistake coincidence for fate, which is a great line and something that Locke has been struggling that balance between coincidence and fate on the island is something he's always looking for because he always leans on the side of fate and destiny, trying to find a greater sense of purpose and meaning in everything that has played out since the crash. So I thought that talk between them was a highlight. And then they splice the footage back into the film and we see what was cut out. And it's Marvin Candle telling us that the hatch computer can only be used to input the number sequence and no attempt to use it to contact the outside world should be made and that people might be tempted, but don't do this. It'll screw up the experiment or it may lead to another incident, which of course was very weird. And immediately this section of the the episode really brings up questions like what else can the hatch computer do? What did he mean? You know, what was the experiment? What was the incident? So, so many things that it adds new questions upon questions. And then the last scene of this episode where Michael is on duty in the hatch and he sees a message on the screen and he starts to communicate with this mystery person who then a couple of seconds later says, dad. And that was a crazy ending to think Walt is somewhere and able to use a computer was kind of nuts and added like a whole new layer of mystery and intrigue to the hatch, the others. And the where is Walt question. There isn't only one station on the island. There are at least two stations on the island. And that for some reason, these stations have different parts of the recording. That got me to wondering, like, could this whole Dharma initiative thing be a social experiment? What will happen if every two hours someone doesn't enter the numbers? I mean, we do eventually find out, but I think the entire Dharma initiative is just a big social experiment to find out if you tell people a story and if you make it terrifying enough, they'll believe in it and they'll do it. Like when you first watched this episode way back in the day, were questions like that running through your head about what the overall secret behind the Dharma Initiative was? Or were you just fascinated by what they were feeding you in front and you weren't really digging into the deeper meanings of the whole thing? Oh, everyone was trying to reach for the deeper meaning, analyzing everything. The names of all the characters mentioned in the Dharma Initiative, breaking down frame grabs online. It became a feeding frenzy of tidbits and Easter eggs. A really fun part of the show was going online after and seeing what other fans found out. Lots of religious and philosophical references hidden in plain sight. And this was like throwing gasoline on a fire for the fans. The whole sequence added to the symbolism and a lot of fans freaked out about all of that. And it led them to keep trying to dig deeper and find new meanings and hints about the overall mystery and ideas of Lost. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Hey kids, when the summer heat hits, the best thing you can do is reach for an ice-cold slusho. Slusho's ice-cold, sugary goodness will make your stomach explode with happiness. Our special ingredient, Seabed's Nectar, comes straight from the ocean floor and adds amazing flavor and health benefits that Slurpee only wishes they had. Incredible flavors like Blueberry Zoom, Banana Anime, and Chocolate Chocolate Rage Rage will make it so you can't drink just six. When the summer heat is melting your face off, be sure to grab an ice-cold slusho. Slusho, we've got the flavor. Available at all Kelvin gasoline locations. Now, back to the show. The last thing that I'll bring up, I love the way that Lost plays with religion and faith 
in general. It's a very interesting way to sort of play with the overall edict of religion and what happens to certain people when they believe and what happens to other people when, when they're skeptics. I just think that the way that loss was constructed was a stroke of genius. We move on to the final episode that we're going to cover this week, the 23rd Sum. I like this episode. It's written by Damon and Carlton, so you know there's going to be a few bombshells dropped. And since they introduced Mr. Echo, he's been one of the most interesting and intriguing characters. So we finally get to his flashback episode to learn how he became the man we know today. And I thought that was just awesome. Echo is the strong, silent type. And we learned that he hasn't always been this way. He has a very checkered past. And at one point, he was like a high-rolling, fast-talking criminal. Now, he is very religious, but in the flashbacks, he doesn't seem to care much for religion kind of valuing power and wealth and flashy things over spirituality which was a nice twist to his backstory that i didn't really see coming our way into these flashbacks is through echo finding out about charlie's virgin mary statue and demanding that charlie take him to the plane Instantly, we know there is more at play here because Echo knows about the statues, the drug running, and seeing how his backstory is juxtaposed with his religious, quiet, stoic present is really well done. The on-island action escalates and we finally see the smoke monster in all its glory as it comes face-to-face with Echo. Those awesome whirling and screeching noises come out of the smoke as part of Mr. Echo's past flash inside of it and I was freaking out to get this look at the monster after all these episodes wondering what the hell was in the jungle and now we're like what the hell is this thing i really love this episode because like you said since mr echo was introduced he's been one of the most intriguing new additions to uh, lost his second season the fact that he doesn't talk very often and the fact that he carries around a big stick with the religious bible passages on it it was really fun learning his backstory and the fact that he was militarized when he was a child living in Africa and the reason why he became militarized is because he he wanted to protect his little brother from killing somebody for me that opening scene was particularly hard because I do believe that there are places in the world that still do this and still make little kids who aren't old enough to basically do anything yet and they make them into soldiers and they basically ruin their lives and it is amazing to me that there's nobody strong enough to sort of like stand up to those people and sort of like whisk them away right there's no there's no sheriff or there's no mandalorian i thought that opening scene in particular was very very strong and and it it hit me in a certain way i don't like the fact that his brother sort of shames him for becoming what he became the only reason that his little brother became a priest is because of what echo did for them when they were children it was one of those moments where it's frustrating because i understand that yemi is now a priest and he wants his brother to be better but knowing that echo did those bad things to protect him I feel he should have been more forgiving. Yemi has trouble reconciling those bad things with his religious beliefs, and we don't know if there was a moment in those intervening years where Echo had a chance to get out of that life and chose not to, and maybe that's why his brother is still kind of mad at him, but we don't know enough to be sure, so I see your point where it's pretty crappy for his brother to shame him when the only reason Echo went down this criminal rabbit hole was so that Yemi didn't have to. I do love that Echo has this tough reputation Someone says, it is true what they say about you. You have no soul. So his reputation precedes him. 
and we're to understand that he has lived up to it doing very bad things and creating this, you know, reputation, this ego. But he isn't afraid to also add to that by telling that one guy, tell all your friends, Mr. Echo, let you live, adding to his own mythology as a badass. So I dug that part a lot and it was an interesting dynamic to see him in that element compared to the echo that we have known for these few episodes on the island who is a totally different person who seems like he's always trying to atone for his sin. My my main problem with his brother not forgiving him for being who he is, I think it's the fact that I've said many times, I believe in loyalty uh, when it comes to family members and when it comes to friends. And when people who claim to be loyal to one another stab each other in the back for other reasons that really ticks me off that's why i didn't vibe with what yemi was putting echo through even though echo is by all accounts a very very uh sadistic individual i mean for god's sakes when he tries to make the deal with those two heroin runners uh, they basically say that he has no soul and what does he do he kills them both within a second but immediately after that the young kid who sees him commit murder on the spot his goons want to shoot that kid and Echo says, no, let him go. And you're basically going to be my example to say to everyone that I'm a badass. I think that by him not allowing his men to shoot that kid, I think that does show that Echo is somewhat evil. But I, I do think that he has some empathy for other individuals besides his uh, baby brother. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I did like the reason Echo demands Charlie lead him on this mission to the plane is to put his brother to rest, finding the body and knowing what happened to Yemi gives echo a sense of peace and closure. And there's like a purity to his intentions that I liked this need to get there and conduct this ceremony, fix his past mistakes. And that awesome scene where he burns the plane while he recites the titular 23rd Psalm from the Bible and gives his brother a proper send off. Yemi's soul is now at rest. I liked that that was his mission. It wasn't like a quest to retrieve the drugs or find some gold. It wasn't like a material thing. It was a spiritual quest that he was on. That black smoke moment along the way was mind blowing. Locke has had some close calls with the smoke monster, but Echo staring right into it and seeing those images from his past flashing within the smoke was so cool and so weird. What did you think when you saw it, Marcelo? I really was like, what the frack? Why isn't the smoke monster attacking Echo? I mean, the last time we saw the smoke monster, it almost took Locke. If it wasn't for some intervention by Jack and Kate, I was like, wow, what's the deal with this pile of smoke? And what's the deal with the, the electricity running through it? I just thought that Echo was special in some aspects. Although I did think to myself that... The smoke monster is like a really, really big lion, so to speak. If you encounter a lion in the jungle and you panic and run, most times the lion will come after you and eat you alive. But if you stand in front of it and if you stare it down, most times the lion will sort of yield to you and leave you alone. So I, I don't know if you thought that, man, but for some reason when I was watching this episode today that parable sort of just rose in my head when we finally got to see the smoke monster in full. Yeah, I think that's a good read on it because it's like the smoke monster judged him and found him worthy where others have been judged and found wanting slash like they've just been brutally killed. So they must not have been worthy. So that lion analogy works for sure. I did love 
the scene where Mr. Echo and Charlie are standing by the plane and Mr. Echo is reciting the hymn. Um, I found that to be very, very, very emotional. and I almost started crying during his scene. And I think the thing that touched me the most was the music playing over it. That is my favorite piece of music throughout the entirety of Lost. I think it's a track called Life and Death. I love it so much that I'm going to have it played at my funeral when I'm dead. And the last thing that I'll say is that I felt really bad for Charlie's relationship with Claire in this episode because if it wasn't for Mr. Echo's sort of quest in this episode to find the plane, to find his brother, do you think that Charlie and Claire's relationship would have continued happily or do you think that Claire would have eventually found out that Charlie was keeping drugs in the religious statues that he had with him? I'm not sure that she would ever have found out but also for me personally, I don't feel sorry for Charlie because he did it to himself. He knew that there was no good that could come from keeping that statue around. And the fact that he's mad about it when he gets found out kind of shows that he's a bit of a selfish dick still. And he's not willing to take responsibility that it was his own actions that brought this upon him. I hated that part where he pretended he didn't know what was inside the statue. Like, dude, give it up. You are caught. You are an addict. Just own it. If he had owned it, things might have gone down differently. And of course, the ending of the episode is Charlie apologizing to Claire, but she doesn't want to hear it and wants him to keep her distance from her and Aaron. And he sort of sulks off into the jungle. And then we see that he not only has this one Virgin Mary statue, but he's got a stockpile of statues. So this isn't over and done with. And at any moment, Charlie could relapse and the effects of that relapse could be catastrophic. I think that the the only thing that keeps Charlie honest and sort of forthright is his relationship with Claire and his relationship with Aaron. Definitely do think that now that he doesn't have that, he's going to relapse. And when he does, some bad shit may or may not happen in the future. But on that note, guys, I think that'll do it for this edition of Radio 815. Um, If you guys like what we do here at all and you want to reach out to us send us questions or anything like that at all the best place to reach us is on twitter by using the hashtag radio 815 if we ever get any questions on there we'll address them live on the show and we'll even give you a shout out matt if the good folks want to reach out to you uh, what will be the best place for them to do it the best spot to reach me is on twitter at matt crandall if you guys want to reach out to me and talk to me about anything, also the best place to reach me is on Twitter. I'm at CreekFanatic88. But until next time, for my co-host, Matt Crandall, I am Marcelo Nestrosa saying, as always, we'll talk back soon. Radio 815 is produced by Balloonhead Productions and Killer Newt Media. This episode featured the song Deep and Dirty by Kevin MacLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Thanks very much for listening.